Amen is right. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thanks, guys. Hello, ladies. What a joy to see all of you here today. I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it's a great thrill to be here. And I want to say thank you for coming. Thank you for coming today. And also I want to say hello to West Campus. We are so glad that you are a part of our Bible study and you've been joining us this semester. This is it, ladies. This is the last day of our study um, for this semester. Next week is Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving. And then we will be breaking for December for the Christmas holidays. And we will come back, uh, main campus, in January on the 8th, and we will be studying the book of Acts. And it's interesting and exciting, and I hope that you plan on being here and will join us January the 8th on main campus. But today we're going to finish up our study of Genesis 1 through 11, where we have learned about the beginnings of everything foundational and important in our life. We've learned a lot about God, who he is, and about the world. God created it, and God is sovereign over it. And we've learned much about ourselves, how God loves us, and how we are to respond to that love in trust and obedience. When I was in high school, a junior in high school, I studied Shakespeare and English literature. And most of you probably did as well. And I realized at that time that I really loved Shakespeare. I loved reading his sonnets. I loved studying his plays. I loved seeing his plays. I was a Shakespeare fan. And one of Shakespeare's more famous plays is Hamlet. It's a tragedy. Um, It's about the prince of Denmark, and his father is the king. He has been murdered, and his mother has hastily married his uncle, the father's brother, and he's now sitting on the throne, which rightfully should have been Hamlet's place. So Hamlet is in a very um, dark place. He is distressed and depressed and despairing. And that's when he contemplates taking his own life. And we hear that famous line that we've all heard before, to be or not to be. That is the question. And that was the question for Hamlet. But a few weeks ago, as I was studying chapters 10 and 11, getting ready for this lesson today, I thought I was praying to the Lord and I was kind of talking to him about it. And I thought, okay, Lord, once again, this is about these guys, whether they're going to obey or not obey. And when I said that, I thought, hmm, that has a little ring to it. So on your outline, you will see the title, to obey or not to obey. That is the question. That is the question that we have seen over and over again in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. To obey or not to obey. And once again, we're going to look at that today. But first, I thought we would take sort of a little uh, quick trip back over these chapters that we've uh, studied and see what we've learned. And look how many times this question comes up. To obey or not to obey. In chapter 1, the first four verses, we see in the beginning God. So we learn God is from the very beginning. He has no beginning, in fact. He is eternal. And then we saw God create the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it. And he said it was good. We saw God's power and we saw God's sovereignty over all that he had created. And when he creates mankind, we are created in his image. Male and female, created in the image of God. 
He creates Adam from the dust and he breathes life into him. And then he takes a rib from Adam and fashions Eve. I love that word that we learned, fashions. Such great love that God has for mankind. And he gives them a purpose. And we've read that and talked about that many times over the last few weeks in Genesis 1:28, And it's on your verse sheet, but let me just remind you. It says um, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the birds and the fish and all the creatures on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. He gives them purpose and he communicates with them and he walks with them in this perfect, beautiful garden that he has created for them. And he gives them freedom. And they're free to eat from any tree except one. There's only one tree that they are restricted. He says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. And here it is, to obey or not to obey? That is the question. We know that they disobey God, that they eat the fruit, and uh, what consequences that follow. The ground is cursed, and work and childbirth will be difficult. But most importantly, their relationship with God is broken. And we see that they are hiding in the garden, um, in shame, guilty, trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, my daughter lives in Houston, and she has a big fig tree. In the summer, I was kind of laughing as I saw a fig leaf. I kind of held it up, and I thought, that's scary if I was going to have to cover myself with fig leaves. But God loves Adam and Eve, and God, in his mercy, sacrifices an animal, and he makes clothing for them out of the animal skin. Then we go on, and... um, We see that because of this, we have all now inherited a sin nature. Adam has sinned, and we all inherit that nature. We are created in the image of God, but we also have the propensity to sin. We see that with Eve. She has two sons, Cain and Abel. And so here's the beginning of family. So we've had the beginning of marriage, one man and one woman for one lifetime. And now we see family, how important family is to God. And so Cain and Abel bring offerings to God, and Cain's fall short. You know, we're not sure if it was his attitude or if it was the offering itself, but we know that Cain knows because God says to Cain, do what is right and you will be accepted. Here it is again, to obey or not to obey. It is going to be Cain's choice, and he chooses to disobey God. He kills his brother, and such hard consequences follow after that. And then chapter 5 opens up with genealogies. And here we see that what God said to Adam and Eve comes to pass. You will surely die. And so we see they live, and then they die. They live, and they die. But there's one exception, Enoch. Enoch chose to obey God. It says Enoch walked with God. And one day he just walked right on into glory with God. But more disobeyed than obeyed until chapter 6 opens and we see that there is so much sin that God is grieved over it. We learn that there are faithful people, those who obeyed God and walked with God, but they intermarried with the disobedience, those who didn't care about God. And so this compromise of obedience leads to great wickedness until it says every thought and deed was inclined only to evil. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. He was righteous, blameless among the people. It says Noah walked with God. Noah chose 
to obey God and to obey God completely. And so for the last four weeks, we've been studying Noah and his family. We've seen him building the ark and we've seen the flood. That was the judgment for the wickedness of man. And we've seen Noah and his family come off the ark and build an altar and worship God. And then last week in chapter 9, we saw new beginnings. Noah and his family blessed by God and receiving that same instruction that God had given to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God makes a covenant with Noah and all his descendants, and so we're included, that he would not destroy the earth again through a flood. And he puts a rainbow in the sky for all men to see. And even today, we see that rainbow and we remember this promise that God made to us. And that brings us to our study today, chapters 10 and 11, where once again we're going to see the question to obey or not to obey. So let's turn to chapter 10. We're going to begin reading there. And um, if you did your homework, you know this is another list of people. Now, some of you, I had one person come up and tell me that, that when you see these lists, your eyes just glaze over and you kind of skim through it till you get to the end. And that's how I used to be until this study of Genesis. My eyes would glaze over and just skim through it. But now I've had a change of heart. Now I see how important these genealogies really are, how much we can learn from them, even to the point that I see these first 11 chapters of Genesis all about the genealogies in 4 and 5 and 10 and 11. It's all about the genealogies with a few stories of people kind of interspersed to help explain it and help us understand it. It's about the genealogies. And what do we learn from these genealogies? I have a couple things. One, God loves people and he loves us individually, not just as a big clump. But he loves us individually. He loves you and you and you and you. and you. Okay, that reminds me. I've been to a lot of TCU football games. And um, they have a cheer. Some of you know it. And they say, we're going to beat you and you and you and you. And they start pointing with their elbow. So I looked at my husband and I said, what is up with this elbow? And he said, well, Deb, it's impolite to point with your finger. So please forgive me this morning. But I want you to know that God loves you. And he loves you individually. And we see that in the genealogies. God also is orderly. We see that. And God has a plan. We see that in the genealogies. We see God's plan unfold as we look at the name after name. So now I read these genealogies carefully. I pour over them, reading them to see, is there some truth I might have missed? Is there some detail here that's going to give me some insight? You know, who knew that that was going to come in this study of Genesis But I hope some of you have seen that same beauty of genealogies that I have. So let's look at verse 1. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So in verse 1, we learn that the whole earth is populated from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we are all related to Noah. We all come from Noah. And that might be a good thing for some of you because you may have been looking back at your own um, genealogies and your own family trees and you're disappointed because you haven't found anyone that has walked with God. You haven't found very many that believed in God. So know this, ladies. Noah is in your family tree. You come from Noah and he was a righteous man that walked with God. 
We also need to remember that God had a plan to bless Noah and his family. We saw that last week, chapter 9, verse 1, when he was given that same instruction that was given to Adam. It says um, that God wanted to bless them, and part of that blessing was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So when chapter 10 opens here, that is God's plan for mankind to be uh, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So let's keep that in mind as we read through this chapter. Verse 2 says, The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javon, Tubal, Meshach, and Teres. And then we see the sons of Gomer and then the sons of Javan. And then in verse 5 we read, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Okay, you may have noticed as you read through um, this genealogy in chapter 10 that this is really quite different than what we, the genealogies in chapter 4 and 5. This genealogy includes people and places. This genealogy in chapter 10 is actually called the Table of Nations, and it explains how the earth was repopulated after the flood. So it's not only a genealogy, but it's also an atlas. And we've included, um, with your verse sheets, a um, map, and we're going to also put that on the screen. And this is to help us visualize the spread of the people as we go through um, this chapter. So verse 5 is very important to us. It says, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So this tells us that the um, ancestors of Japheth spread, and here is a map, and I've got my handy-dandy little pointer. We'll see if this works. Okay, so the descendants of Japheth, they're in this triangle of dark gray, and you see that they are spread along the coastlands, and they've gone to the north and mainly to the west. And I also want you to know that um, people think that the um, ancestors of Japheth are the Gentile nations. And so we would be from the line of Japheth. Also, um, I just want to point out that the uh, Old Testament Jew standing on the banks of the Jordan River would consider these um, nations as the distant lands. They were the distant lands from them. And we see that word distant lands used in Psalms, and we also see it used in Isaiah. Those are the outlying countries. Last week, we also learned that the nations from Japheth would live on friendly terms with Israel. So this was very important for those Israelites to know. So let's go on with that and look at um, verse 6. And here we're going to see the sons of Ham. We read the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And some of your translations may say that a little differently. But these are the four sons of Canaan. And if you'll drop down to verse 20, we read... These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their nations, their lands, and their languages, their lands, and their nations. So we see Ham here, and um, this verse 20 is very similar to that verse we just read in verse 5. They are going out with their own language and their, to their own uh, lands, and they form nations. And some of you might be thinking, well, what about chapter 11 where it says they all had one language? And that's exactly right. So that's how we know that this story in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel story, takes place at the beginning or maybe in the middle of these genealogies. That's where it's actually happening. So with that thought in mind, let's go back and read verse 8. 
Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and he built Nineveh and some other cities. So we see this is a little bit different. All of a sudden we see one individual and there's several verses telling us about him. And these verses uh, are interesting, but they're also somewhat confusing. Some think that when it says Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, that that was a good thing, that that was a positive thing. But there's many other theologians that think it is negative. And I tend to fall into that camp. I don't think Nimrod was for God. I think he was against God. And one reason I think that is because Nimrod's name means to rebel. To rebel. And when it says a mighty hunter, and I think some translations even say warrior, this word here is not really hunting animals like we think, someone going out and shooting a dove. This is more of a great warrior conquering people. It kind of gives the, um, the connotation of being a tyrant, a ruthless leader conquering people. And these words are commonly used with the leaders and rulers of Assyria. And we know from verse 11 that Nimrod is going to uh, build a kingdom in, in the city of Nineveh, in the land of Assyria. Before the Lord could also mean that God sees Nimrod. He sees what he's doing and that Nimrod is bold and arrogant before the Lord. He doesn't care about these actions before God. God sees this arrogance. And then in verse 10, we also read that he comes and begins his city in Babel, in the land of Shinar. And those words are very familiar to us when we studied chapter 11, because that's where that story of the Tower of Babel takes place. And because of that, many think that Nimrod was the leader of that rebellion that took place in chapter 9 as the Tower of Babel story. So with that being said about Nimrod, let's drop down to 15, and we're going to see another person, Canaan. He was one of the sons of Ham, and we talked about him last week. Lynn talked about him in her lesson in chapter 9. <clears throat> and it says here, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and some other ites. And these are important to the Israelites, you might have noticed, because in Deuteronomy we see these people, they are enemies of Israel. In the years to come, these will be Israelites' enemies. We go on to read verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extend from Sidon in the direction of Gerah as far as Gaza. And in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zidoam as far as Lasha. So this is interesting to us because we talked about Cain last week and we saw that curse. Um, now it was really Noah's prophecy or Noah's oracle. Cain uh, didn't rebel against God because of the curse, but rather out he lived. But rather he lived out the curse. He followed in his um, father's Ham's footsteps in um, immorality and disobedience against God. And because of that, God would judge Canaan and would actually give his land to Abraham. This was going to be the promised land to Abraham and then to the Israelites. And so on your map there, you see the descendants of Ham in this little white oval. And here we go. Here's Canaan. This would be the land of Israel someday. 
And you see the others there. And you might notice that all this map is really kind of centered around Canaan. Every time we talk about the lands and they spread out here and there, it's all in reference to Canaan. And that is because that would become Israel, the land of the Israelites. Let's go on, verse 21, and look at the uh, genealogy of Shem. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Okay, I want to say two things about that verse. The first one, the ESV translation says that Shem was the elder brother of Japheth. Some other translations, um, particularly the NIV, says that um, Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. So in that translation, we see them saying Japheth is the older brother. So um, apparently, as I studied this, there's a word in Hebrew that can kind of be translated either way. It can mean either one. And so some theologians think translated as Japheth is the older. Some say Shem is the older. I don't think it makes a lot of difference. What we do know about Shem is that from Shem's line would come blessing. From Shem's line would come blessing. And so because of that, Shem's line is very important to us. So uh, the other thing I want to say there in that is we see that he is the father of all the children of Eber. Now, why does it say that at the very beginning? The reason for that is because the name Hebrew comes from the name Eber. And the Hebrews, Abraham is called um, a Hebrew in Genesis 14. And the Israelites become known as the Hebrews. They're called Hebrews. And so they all come from the line of Eber, who is um, from the line of Shem. So that's important, and it's put in verse 21. So we go on and read in 22, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshed, Lud, and Aram. And that third son there, Arpachshed, some of your translations have that spelled differently. I'm just going to call him Big A, because I don't know how to say it anyway. So that's Big A, and we see in verse 24 that Big A fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. And then to Eber was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now that's important, that that's put in there. Peleg, whose name means division, that this is the time the earth was divided. And that is probably a reference to the story of the Tower of Babel when God comes down and disperses all the people across the nations. This story took place during um, Peleg's lifetime. And then we go on and we see the lineage of Joktan finished um, out through here. And we see in verse 30, the territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So once again on your map, here's the descendants of Shem, kind of the gray parallelogram. And you see that they really are to the... Uh, northeast and east and south, once again, of Canaan. So that's where the lineage of Shem ends up. And then verse uh, 32 is a summary statement of this whole chapter. These the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So we see here, God's plan for man to fill the earth has come to pass. God's plan has come to pass as we see them filling the earth. John Constable says in his notes that God's plan to bless the human race 
by dividing the family of man by languages, locations, and leaders. This was God's plan. This was the way he was going to bless them, by dividing them by languages, locations, and leaders. Just like God formally blessed the earth by dividing the light from darkness and the earth from the heavens and the land from the seas. We also see here that God is in control. God is the Lord of the nations. God is the one who caused this to happen. And Moses repeats that thought on your verse sheet in Deuteronomy 32.8. We read this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to, num to the number of the sons of God. God is in control. God is the Lord of the nations. But how was that spreading abroad the earth accomplished? That is what we're going to learn in chapter 11. So let's go on and look there. Okay, we have God's plan, be fruitful and fill the earth. And now we're going to read man's plan. And it was something quite different. Let's begin in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we see there in verse 1 that everyone spoke the same language, the same words. And that is pretty um, hard to even imagine because there are so many languages in our world today. I work at JPS, and I've worked there for a long time with children and with babies. And over the years, I have heard many, many, many languages. Actually, every time I go to work, I hear different languages. Sometimes it's Asian languages, Chinese or Vietnamese or Korean Many times it's African languages, Swahili or other African tribal dialects. I've heard French and German, and I have heard much Spanish. There are many, many people that speak Spanish at JPS. In fact, every time I go to work, I have some patient that only speaks Spanish. Now, unfortunately, I only speak English. I know a few words of Spanish that I try to use um, now and then, sometimes with good results and sometimes not. And so I have a story. This happened a few years ago. Some of you may um, remember this, but um, I had a family in a room, mom and dad, and they had their little baby, probably about nine months old, and he was sick, and, and I was going to admit him to the room, and I was waiting for the translator to come, and they spoke no English. So I thought, well, I know enough to say, me llamo Debbie, it means my name is Debbie. And then I had learned the word for nurse, and so I thought, well, I'll try that out. And the word for nurse is, some of you Spanish speakers will have to correct me, it's enfermera. Enfermera. So I'm pointing to myself and I'm saying, I think that word, enferma, enferma. And so in comes the translator. Some of you speak Spanish and the translator comes in and she looks at me. And in the meantime, the family's look is becoming friendly to a look of horror and confusion. And the translator laughs and she goes, do you know what you're saying? And I said, nurse? And she said, no, you're saying sick, sick. And so she begins to explain to the family what um, I was doing. And uh, they kind of laugh. And it's sort of that laugh, you know, where it's kind of like, huh, who's this bozo that's going to take care of my child? <laughs> yeah, it can be difficult if you do not know someone's language and if they do not understand yours. 
But this was not the case here. This um, wasn't the case. We're told in verse 1 that these people, um, they come, probably a pretty large number of people, to the plain of Shinar. And by the way, in this plain is going to come the great city of Babylon one day. So they come to this plain and they are speaking the same language. And this enables them to carry out their plan. And what is their plan? Verse 4 gives us the plan. So let's look at that again. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. So the first part of their plan, we're going to build a city and a really, really, really tall tower. Second part, let us make a name for ourselves. They want to be famous. They want their name lifted up. And the third part of their plan, so that we do not have to be scattered over the face of the earth. And when they say that part of the plan, we know that they knew what God wanted. That God wanted them to spread out and fill the earth. But their pride leads to rebellion. And once again, the question to obey or not to obey is put before them. And they answer with, not to obey. They are not going to obey God. They are going to go ahead with this foolish plan. Verse 3 tells us they had figured out how to make bricks and to use tar for mortar. And they needed bricks because stone is uh, not commonly found in this part of the world. And then some think that this tower is actually called a ziggurat. And we've seen those throughout this region. And what happens is you have a big square, big square base. And then the sides go up and they're inclined like little steps. till you get to the top, which is flat. And there is a shrine to worship um, the stars, the moon, the sun, other things like that. Sort of see the beginning of idolatry here. And I read where archaeologists have actually discovered among the ruins of ancient Babylon a building that's 153 feet high. And the sides um, and the 400 foot base, which is really large, with the sides going up. And at the top, this shrine was covered with um, signs of the zodiac. Maybe, who knows, this was this tower in Babel that they were building But what we do know is that their pride leads to rebellion and disobedience. Their pride leads to this plan of pride, of rebellion, and disobedience. And I want to say here, I'm talking about pride. Pride is dangerous for us today. It's dangerous and we struggle with it. So I have a a definition of pride, and it is the self-exalting attitude that seeks to dislodge God as the center of all things and deny him the glory That is due him. Let me say that one more time. Pride is the self-exalting attitude that seeks to dislodge God as the center of all things and deny him the glory that is due him. That is what their pride led them to with their foolish plan of rebellion and disobedience. Because a prideful person wants the glory for himself wants to exalt himself. A humble person recognizes who God is in light of who he is. God, sovereign, powerful, creator of the whole universe, all-knowing, loving, compassionate, merciful. And who am I? I am a small creature created by God. I am powerless. I have control over almost nothing. I need God. I trust God. I want God. Humility says, I want to follow you because you, O Lord, know best. Pride says, I want to be the leader in control. I do not need God. I know what is best. 
Their plan was to make a name for themselves. It's pride. And we still have men today that build towers and some bear their names. We have the Eiffel Tower in Paris and the Trump Tower in New York and many others. But ladies, as followers of Jesus, we do not want our names lifted up. We want the name of Jesus lifted up. Let God exalt the humble. James tells us that very thing in uh, James 4, 6 through 10, where it says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Our pride leads to foolish plans. Our pride deceives us. Plans that are not God's plans end in disappointment and disaster and distance from God and discipline and even destruction and death. On your verse sheet, I have a verse Solomon um, gives us about man's plans. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And this was so important to Solomon that he also writes this very same verse in Proverbs 14, verse 12. Solomon wants us to really know that, to really learn that, that we may have plans that seem good, but if they're not God's plans, they are not going to go well for us. Those are foolish plans that will not go well. So what is God's response to their plan? Let's go on and read verse 5 and see. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So what's God's plan? It says God came down. Okay, now he didn't really have to come down to see what was going on. That is a literary technique to dramatize or to visualize God's intervention. God responds to man's actions. God is aware and he is involved in our life. And God notes that with one language, there is no limit to the rebellion, to the sin, to the evil that they can spur one another on to do. The unity they have was not um, used to come together and worship and glorify and obey God. No, their unity was to provoke one another on to greater rebellion and disobedience. Unity, we learn as believers, is a good thing. When we are united in Christ, encouraging one another towards God, that unity is good. And that's what we see um, in Hebrews 10. I have that on your verse sheet. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says there, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's the kind of unity that's encouraging, that points us towards God. This unity was for rebellion. And in verse 7, it says, when um, it says, let us go down, I just want to make a quick note that is once again a reference to the um, triune God. We saw that in chapter 1. This is a reference to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The triune God coming down or intervening in the lives of these people. And what happens? 
He confuses their language and they are dispersed. They are scattered throughout the land. And so in this verse, we see the beginning of all the languages that are on earth and in our world today. Here's the beginning of language. And do you see how this discipline was also a blessing? How God um, steps in so that man's rebellion doesn't reach the proportion that it was before the flood? It's a blessing that God comes in and disperses them and spreads them out so that the rebellion doesn't continue. God wanted to bless man. He wants them to fill the earth. It was a good thing. God's plans are good. And it was a good thing that this came to pass. God calls the place um, Babel, and that word comes from a Hebrew word that means to confuse. Um, And in this area, the city, great city of Babylon, would be built. And Babylon would be an arch enemy of the Israelites. In fact, the Babylonians one day would take the Israelites into captivity. And even in the New Testament, Babylon symbolizes arrogant pride, corruption, and defiance against God. This story is a reminder for us that God's plans will go forward, either by our obedience as we work with God or in God's judgment on our disobedience. So God's plan is going to go through either way, either through our our obedience to him or as he judges us for our disobedience. God's plans and purposes will be accomplished in spite of man's defiance. But God's desire is to bless us. God's plans for us are good. Why would we not want to follow God's plans? I have two verses um, on your verse sheet that are, um, there are many, many in scripture, but I like these two. Psalm 33, the psalmist tells us, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And then Jeremiah 29, 11, this is God speaking, and Jeremiah the prophet records it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God's desire is to bless us. God has good plans for us. So let's go on, and we're going to finish chapter 11 with one more genealogy, and we're going to look at it quickly. And with this genealogy, we see God's plan to bless and redeem mankind. And I'm so glad we're not going to end with everyone being scattered across and speaking different languages. No, we're going to end with this genealogy. And so we're going to end on a high note, because in this genealogy, we um, are going to see that we have a future and a hope. So let's look at verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Big A two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Big A 500 years and had other sons and daughters. So in these two verses, we see that this genealogy is written a little bit differently than chapter 10. It sounds a whole lot more like the genealogy um, in chapters 4 and 5. Because here we see that the age is included when they fathered the child and then how many years they lived. But unlike chapter 5, the emphasis here is on life. The other difference that we're going to see is down in verse 16. It says, 
Uh, when Eber had lived for 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived, after he fathered Peleg, 430 years, had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru, and then so on and so forth, until we get to verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is important because um, we read here that from the generation of Shem comes Abram. And we know him as Abraham. His name is changed by God in chapter 17. And um, Abram, Abraham is important because the rest of the book of Genesis will be about Abraham and his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons from whom comes the nation Israel. So these verses, um, 31 through, uh, well, actually 27 through 32, really give us background to Abraham. That's what the, uh, this genealogy is in here for. And we learn in there, I'm not going to read through it for time's sake, but we learn that Abraham has a wife, Sarai, and that she is barren. And we learn about his nephew, Lot, and we learn that they leave um, with Terah, and they go from Ur of the Chaldeans, and they're on their way to Canaan, but they stop off in Haran. Now, some of you might have thought, oh, we lost our map, but that's okay. Um, on your map that you have, you'll notice that Haran is up north, and you're thinking, hey, why'd they take the long way to get to um, Canaan? That is because there's a big desert in between, and so they had to go up north to Haran, and then they are going to continue down in chapter 12 to Canaan. Abraham is very important to the Jewish faith, and he is also very important to our faith because God makes a covenant with Abraham, a covenant of blessing that affects us today as believers. And I want to read that um, covenant blessing to you. Just let your eyes drop down, chapter 12, verse 2. This is God talking to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here we see this is a reference to Jesus Christ. This blessing to all people, this covenant blessing is a reference to Jesus Christ coming to the earth. And we know that Jesus was from the line of David, who was from the line of Judah, who is the great-grandson of Abraham. In fact, you might want to read the genealogy of Jesus over the Christmas holidays, and you'll find that in Matthew 1 or in Luke 3. It's interesting because it ties in what we've been studying in Genesis to the birth of Jesus. So God has a plan for blessing mankind, a plan to redeem us from our sin. God's grace consistently exceeds his wrath. You know, it was probably, if you add all this up in chapter 11, it was probably only about 300 years from this Tower of Babel story with the disobedience of man to um, Abraham's birth, who would be the, um, have the covenant blessing from his line would come Jesus it wasn't that much time. God's grace is always greater than his wrath. And we see that in his plan. God has a plan to redeem us from our sin, to life eternal with him. And this plan is Jesus, God the Son, who comes to earth to reveal God the Father and to die on the cross to shed his blood in payment for our sin. 
And when we accept that free gift, when we acknowledge Jesus as our Savior, when we believe in him, then we have eternal life with God and we become daughters of the Most High King. We are his beloved. And as his beloved, as believers in Jesus, we also have the same question before us today. To obey or not to obey? To choose obedience and walk with God or to refuse those blessings that he has for us as daughters of the king and to walk our own path in disobedience. On the bottom of your outline, I have three ways to three steps in walking with God. And they're pretty simple and you all probably know them. The first one is to talk to God. Talk to God. Ask him every day for help. God has given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And the Holy Spirit encourages us and gives us what we need to walk with God. On your verse sheet, I have Acts 9.31. This is talking about the church, but also refers to us. The church was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can encourage us. By the way, did I say that we're going to study Acts in January? And Acts is all about the Holy Spirit. So if you ever wanted to know about the Holy Spirit, join us in January. We're going to talk all about him. Second step. Read God's word to learn his truth. And I'm preaching to the choir. That's what you all are here doing all semester. You're studying God's word to learn his truth so that you might obey it. We see Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is what tells us what we're supposed to obey. And Micah 6.8 tells us this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. How are we supposed to act? We're supposed to act justly. We're supposed to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And the third step, practice the presence of God. Practice the presence of God. That simply means to think about, be aware that God is always with you. God is always with you. When you're washing the dishes, God is there with you. When you're driving in the car and the kids are screaming in the back, God is in the midst of that. When your boss has given you an unreasonable deadline, God is there with you in the midst of it. A um, monk that lived in the 1600s was the one that kind of wrote letters and talked about how he, over his lifetime, practiced the presence of God. And he said it's not easy. It does take practice. But he says in there that just the smallest amount of obedience leads to great blessing. That's a paraphrase of mine. But we know that blessing follows obedience. And it's not equal. Our tiny little bit of obedience ends up in great blessing poured down upon us. So ladies, ladies, let's walk with God and choose to obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. You love us so much. You have such good plans for us. And Father, we tend to go our own way. And yet, Lord, we want to obey you. And so I just ask you, Father, that we would read your word and that you would speak to our hearts. And, Father, that the Holy Spirit would encourage us on that path of obedience with you. Lord, thank you so much for these ladies. I just pray a great blessing upon each of them as they go out over this Christmas season. I pray that you would be with them, that you would bless them, that you would bring us all back safely in January. Father, you are awesome, and we love you. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.